1: On Commons People this week, coronavirus starts to bite. The uh, issue of
0: a coronavirus is something that is now the government's top priority. Can
1: pretty Patel hang on? I have this morning resigned as Permanent Secretary of the Home Office. And how do we deal with tribalism in society?
0: Ultimately, I want a politics where we can come back together again.
1: Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh, and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. And we're delighted to have the Labour MP for Tottenham, David Lammy. Hi. Hi, David.
0: How are you? Great. Very good. Reeling from Spurs' exit from the uh, FA Cup. Well, I'm obviously very upset about that. um, But it's pouring outside, which is the other thing. So I'm a little bit wet. One of those days.
1: Well, Britain is ramping up its response to the coronavirus outbreak, which is now focusing on delaying its spread for as long as possible. The contagion is already causing economic damage, with the airline Flybe going bust overnight. And discussions are ongoing about whether to shut down Parliament if it gets worse. Nevertheless, Boris Johnson has been boasting about shaking the hands of coronavirus
0: patients. I, I, I'm shaking hands. I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands and uh, uh, I think it's very important that we, you know, people obviously can make up their own minds. I think the, Matt has said that people must make up their own minds, but I think the scientific evidence is, well, I'll hand over to the, to, to the wa- experts. But, wa- but wash our judge- Our judgment is wash. Uh, washing your hands is the crucial thing.
2: Paul, what do you make of the government's response to this so far? Well, I was at that press conference on Monday with the Prime Minister where he did his first number 10 press conference... Since becoming Prime Minister, it's quite a nice thing having a number 10 press conference. You you can get a lot out of it, believe it or not. Interacting with the press, that's not a bad idea. Um, And more importantly, experts, they're back, aren't they? I mean, who would have thought it, you know? (laughs) Britain needs experts. And and it was really interesting that that clip you played where the PMs boasted about, oh, I've shaken hands with people. As he said it... I was looking at the chief medical officer as he said it, and his little eyebrow went up like that, and he went like, (laughs) "What?" He he didn't say anything, but you could get the message that he meant. uh, Well, actually, we don't shake hands. We're we're now taking all sorts of measures. What on on earth is he saying? Um, And number ten had to clarify a bit afterwards that actually he hadn't actually shaken the hands of a coronavirus patient, prime minister, just in a hospital where the royal free in Hampstead, where people had been. So he just couldn't help himself. So doing that sort of bonhomie thing. Although, to be fair to him, overall, I think the government message has been pretty measured, pretty nuanced, and it just shows that if you've got the experts leading this, then it's a much more um, easy strategy politically, I think, which is that you can say, look this isn't our decision. These guys know what they're talking about. Epidemiologists. And we're really lucky that Chief Medical Officer is a. this is his field. This is what he trained in. He was born for this moment. A lot of previous Chief Medical Officers, you know, they've done different bits Thank of medicine. Jesus. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. And it, 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 this is his time. And he knows everything about how the, what the graph will look like. The, an exp, exponential increase in the cases. And it was just quite reassuring that someone knew what they were doing. Mm. And to be honest, politically, given what's been happening in the last few years, that's a rarity isn't it
1: mm. yeah David what have you made of the government's response so far and, and do you have any particular concerns about your constituency and, and particularly kind of more working class area yeah how people might be yeah. affected in a different I way.
0: mean I am concerned yeah. about Boris I think that was a really hopeless gaffe that should not be being made by the British Prime Minister and more seriously uh, cast your mind back to 2011 when riots begun in my constituency and raged across the country for days, Boris was found wanting. He was horribly heckled and booed by the people, not of Tottenham, but of Clapham. Um, he was that bad. So I am worried about Boris, but actually, having been uh, a junior minister in the, in the health department, uh, we've got some fantastic officials in that area of public policy Great scientists, um, I think our linking into the World health authority will be uh, organization will be fantastic, and, and actually we'll be leading on trying to find breakthroughs and trying to manage our way through this, and I hope we'll do better than some other nations have, have been able to do. I think in my constituency, of course, there's anxiety across London, people are worried about the tube. they're worried about schools, they're worried about churches. Um, uh, and how they ordinarily meet. Um, And they don't want to lose money because they can't go to work. Um, So, I mean, I hope that as we move to this next stage, after containment to delay, and we move into the summer, that at least the hot weather, and it is getting a bit warmer uh, for other reasons, um, sees that the virus abate.
1: Yeah, um, Boris Johnson has said he's singing happy birthday twice, to wash his hands for the correct amount of time. Have you got a song or (laughs) anything you're...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or are you just counting 20? I just sort of... Come on, you spurs. I sort
0: of of imagine... You know, I used to watch ER. You remember the ER and the doctors used to scrub up? So I sort of imagine myself as a doctor scrubbing every last minute, you know, and getting it all out and, you know, and I walk around with a little sort of, you know, antiseptic drops and things so that you can can get it all off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and Paul, the government's had to change its approach. It's kind of had to call off its war with certain elements of the media, uh, since this outbreak has broken out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I was tempted on Monday when we were all invited in to actually ask questions to the Prime Minister. I did actually ask a proper question about about schools and what was going to happen. And his his answer was interesting on that, which was we're not going to go straight away to the idea of closing schools like Italy has had to do because it's a different situation, or Japan has closed schools for a whole month, Hong Kong as well. But we're in a different stage of the virus, but also more importantly, our advice, expert advice is, Um, Kids are actually not as susceptible to this disease as over 80s, for example. And so what benefit is there when particularly NHS workers... They rely on schools to provide them childcare. A lot of women working in the health service, if schools were closed, couldn't be available to the health service. And similarly, there's exams this year, you know, GCSEs and A levels, really important exams. So they've got to, they're, they're quite rightly being sensible about balancing that up all together. It might be you might get a few weeks before the summer holiday, I suspect, what will happen that, that schools close early. But if, as long as it doesn't affect exams, I suspect that will happen. But yeah, you're right on the wider point about inviting the media. Um, I was tempted, if I hadn't asked a serious question, to say, isn't this proof that, um, you know, open societies are better than closed ones, Prime Minister, when it comes to combating diseases, and open societies mean a friend to change and scrutiny with media, uh, and you can't pick and choose who you want to ask you the questions? But yeah. that would have been glib and obviously not my style. <laughs> wow. uh,
1: there's also talk of Parliament closing down, David, because... We could potentially have 650 super spreaders, you know, MPs who are going to every corner of the country and meeting all sorts of people from around the world every day. What do you make of that?
0: I think that would be extraordinary if the British Parliament uh, decided to up sticks and and sort of leave it to the people. No, I mean, I think that there may be a case for parliamentarians who are um, susceptible, um, um, respiratory issues, or are of a certain age. Peers um, in
2: particular, I yeah. Guess,
0: yeah. Uh, 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 so the House of Lords may be in a slightly different category. We've got to be there. And uh, there are ways in which we, either it's us through our surgeries or through our own public meetings, can kind of limit that. But I do think, as the people responsible for uh, both scrutinising what the government's doing, speaking up for our constituents, um, I think it would be extraordinary if we suddenly just sort of stayed at home. Yeah. You can
2: you imagine if there was a, a spike in cases and Parliament was not sitting and MPs would want to say, actually, let's bring the minister before us, let's have an answer, let's have a statement. How could they do that? He couldn't do it. The other problem is it points to actually how, how antiquated our parliament is. There is no cap- capability, as there is in Iran, it seems, to have a virtual parliament mm-hmm. to, for David at home to be on his laptop and join in the debate generally online. You, we don't ha- we're not geared up for any of that. So maybe over time people are going to finally think that, yeah, remote voting, for example, might be a good thing and stuff like that. So there might be some good to come out of it. But in the meantime, you couldn't possibly shut down Parliament because, A, there's no real medical advice to say it make any blind bit of difference. Um, but secondly, uh, what would it say about the government operating without any kind of parliamentary check? And, and I saw on Twitter this morning, I think um, Stuart Wood, Labour peer, was saying, well, if you did do that, you'd the only way it would work is if you have a government of national unity. You'd have to have the Labour Party and other parties in a brand new government. Otherwise, Without Parliament as, a, as a, a check on what the government's doing, you could, it wouldn't be remotely politically viable. That ain't going to happen, Paul. I know. Very <laughs> <laughs> foreign secretary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, his last. I'm his last
0: volunteering chance. if it is, but. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, things
1: are going bad to worse for Home Secretary Priti Patel since last week's show. Her permanent secretary, Sir Philip Rutman, has quit delivering an explosive on-camera resignation speech in which he accused Patel of bullying, briefing against him and then lying about it. He has vowed to sue Patel, who is facing a daily drip of allegations that she bullied staff in three government departments. Here are some of Rutnam's resignation speech.
3: I have this morning resigned as Permanent Secretary of the Home Office. I take this decision with great regret after a career of 33 years. I am making the statement now because I will be issuing a claim against the Home Office for constructive dismissal. In the last 10 days, I have been the target of a vicious and orchestrated briefing campaign. It has been alleged that I have briefed the media against the Home Secretary. This, along with many other claims, is completely false. The Home Secretary categorically denied any involvement in this campaign to the cabinet office I regret I do not believe her
1: Paul, is is Priti Patel's departure
2: from the cabinet inevitable now? It does seem to me as a question of of when not if if you'd see all these allegations just mounting up, it seems like a pattern of behaviour. If it's a one-off, then you can say, right, let's let's deal with a specific allegation and let's try and, you know, focus on it. But three different departments, multiple allegations, then it's it's almost, I hate to say it, it's a bit like the Me Too allegations. If you see a pattern of behaviour, if you see, you know, a series of people coming forward and saying the same thing, then you begin to think, hold on a tick, um... First, it shows that getting it out there publicly matters because people then can then have the confidence to come forward. And this is a really difficult thing, bullying, to go public on. A lot of these people feel vulnerable. The, the, the jobs are on the line. They're often forced out of court um, to make settlements. Um, but the, that drip feed of, of allegations, I think, is really, really difficult. More importantly, though, I think there's a lot of Tory MPs who are beginning to think, actually, or, although we're being asked to stand by her... It's a question of competence as much as bullying. And if she's really an incompetent Home Secretary, even in the day job, never mind the bullying issue, if she can't really do things that are, for example, legal as Home Secretary, and when it comes to that deportation flight, which David has talked a lot about, you know, if the legal advice was actually these people weren't properly legally consulted about this and yet she still tried to drive it through, that's a question of competence as much as anything else. And you're thinking... That that's a, a really difficult combo, bullying and incompetence.
1: Um, David, you've kind of campaigned on Home office issues for a number of years. There is an argument to say it's been dysfunctional for years and uh, a minister needed to go in and shake things up. But what do you make of that?
0: Oh, look, come on. It, the Home Office has been a problematic d- department, as you say, for, for many, many years. But I can think back to John Reid, um, Charles Clarke under the... Labour government. Theresa May was there for a very long period. Um, All of these individuals have been robust or had very robust special advisers on their behalf. None of them have been accused of belittling, swearing, bullying, um, briefing against the permsec, so this is extraordinary, and I think her problem is it feels like it's not just one department. There's a trail that's following her, and she has some of the biggest and most difficult public policy issues in her entry. She still hasn't, actually, by the way, published the Windrush report. She's still got to face that. Uh, she's got to deliver on the agenda that she's set on immigration. I think that she's on the ropes. I can't see how easily that she will survive. I also, I mean, I've been around now long. I'm into my 20th year. There's a mood that happens in Westminster when the media pack itself can see that a minister's vulnerable and bright young journalists go off and they start investigating other things. They start getting phone calls, whistle. I've had a bit of whistleblowing to my office. So (coughs) I would have thought that she can't survive, won't survive and probably shouldn't survive because she... She, she had this misstep in international development and I'm afraid she's floundering again.
1: Uh, you said you've had whistleblowers come to your office. Are they kind of raising similar points to what we've
0: heard? Or? Actually, no. The whistleblowers that have approached me are raising issues largely in relation to the state of immigration, um, to Windrush. Uh, but now I've been on this show... Maybe someone <laughs> will be emailing uh, about a particular bullying claim, and I will be going to Paul directly uh, <laughs> with the case. So do email. No, no, come to <laughs> me. I, I'm covering <laughs> the story.
1: Labour have stopped short of, of actively calling for her to go. I mean, would you go that far?
0: I think sometimes you can overdo that. It's patently obvious she's in trouble. It's patently obvious that there are cases to answer. There is a question about the nature of the um, investigation that's going on at the moment. Is it properly robust and independent? But actually, I don't. You know, let, let's uh, slowly, slowly.
1: And 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 Philip Rutnam's kind of come across as this kind of victim in this particular case, and so he may be, um, but. His record's not exactly great, is it? He was there when Windrush happened, for example. So maybe there is another side to this. Maybe you...
0: I think we've got to separate competence and issues of competence for that department. And, of course, the Perm Sec also has to take responsibility for that. And um, maltreatment in terms of behaviour and poor behaviour in terms of human resources and the way you behave at work. And... Uh, pretty Patel has got some very serious allegations uh, um, around her and that's not just actually it sounds like in relation to him.
1: It's interesting this isn't it because it, it kind of mirrors what happened in Parliament where it was revealed pretty quickly when bullying allegations service that there's no mechanism to deal with it in Parliament and it seems that there's no real mechanism to deal with it government either
2: that's true i mean parliament has begun to get its act together a bit now i mean the more independent processes and i think after the whole uh, bullying stuff emerged last year particularly on Burkow, John Burkow, the former Speaker, then the House has, has got its House in order, so to speak. And I think there are more independent ways of raising bullying if an MP does it. Now, it, it's getting into the right place, thanks to the trade unions and others who've actually negotiated it. Um, the key test, in my opinion, actually, is historic cases and whether or not MPs have got enough guts to go after John Burkow, given there's a string of allegations against him by clerks and others. Um, that's yet to be done. Um, but I, I, the, I made this point in a, in a war zone earlier this week that the sheer hypocrisy of it is just astounding, though. The people who are standing by Priti Patel are all the people who uh, actually really went for Burko on bullying, Tory MPs because of Brexiteers and thought that he was not in favour of Brexit, and vice versa, loaded Labour MPs who stood by John Burko said he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why? Because they agreed with him on Brexit and they turned a blind eye to bullying. And it's that hypocrisy I think the general public will think, hold on a tick, come on shouldn't you all be actually treating this seriously? Patterns of behaviour are pa- patterns of behaviour for a reason. Like I say, if it's a one-off, you can f- possibly justify it. But if it's a string of allegations, you, then there's a case for an independent investigation, and a thorough one. And Whitehall, yeah, needs to have a, a better proceeding than it's got at the moment. If a minister does something like this, um, they're, they're not open to the same sort of channels that a, a civil servant will be. If a civil servant maltreated another member of staff, the proper internal procedures for dealing with it, but a minister—all um, we've got is, is the ministerial code, uh, which set up the, the monitoring of it, set up by Gordon Brown, uh, where you have this guy called Sir Alex Allen, an in, independent or quasi-independent person, investigate it, and then it's up to the prime minister at the end of the day, whether or not a he calls them in and then is judge and jury on the case. That all seems wrong, I and mean, obviously politicians can't be, you know, um, dictated to by people who aren't politicians, you might say. And there's a sort of constitutional point there. But the the transparency and the lack of independence at the moment seems certainly a big issue.
1: Yeah, well, we must move on because we've got David on the podcast today to discuss his new book out today. Uh, It's called Tribes, and it's inspired by a DNA test David took back in 2007, and it's an exploration of how to heal the divides in a country that has become much more tribal. In it, David addresses past controversies around his responses to the Grenfell disaster and comic relief, and here is a clip of a powerful interview he gave in the aftermath of the Grenfell disaster in 2017.
0: This is a tale of two cities. This is what Dickens was writing about in the century before the last, and it's still here in 2017. It's the face of the poorest and the most vulnerable. My friend who lost her life was a talented artist, but she was a young black woman making her way in this country, and she absolutely had no power or locus or agency. She had not yet achieved that in her life. She'd done amazing things, gone to university, the best in her life, but she's died with her mother on the 22nd floor of a building. (laughs) And it breaks my heart that that's happening in Britain in 2017, it breaks my heart.
1: Um, David, can you explain what the book's about and why you revisited that interview?
0: Well, um, the book is in part a sort of memoir and in the sense that I explore my own belonging and perhaps the tribes to which I belong. So I take this DNA test. I took this DNA test actually back in 2007-8 and I found out that I am partly Tuareg um, or That particular tribe in the sort of um, west North African region and I go back to Niger to try and find that tribe. I'm also a little bit Scottish, by the way. (laughs) Um, and, And I also go back to Peterborough, where I spent seven years at school. And, you know, I love being the MP for Tottenham. I'm very much from Tottenham, but I don't think I'd be a Member of Parliament were it not for the experience, if you like, of being raised in Middle England, and I go and speak to to, to folk and friends in that city, and it's a leave city, so it's very much on the divide. But that allows me really then to also think about what belonging means, and I think it's a real issue in society today. Um, It's at the heart of some of the big debates around identity politics. It's at the heart of debates around loneliness, mental health, um, and... For the Labour Party, for those on the sort of progressive left of the political spectrum, um, it's absolutely the case that the new right, the populist nationalists, somehow tap in to people's sense of a lack of belonging. And the sort of flabby left progressive movement are found wanting in this area. So the book is not a Labour politician writing about the economy. It's actually writing about culture and society.
2: That's why I found it fascinating, actually, really, really refreshing to have a politician looking at something that's not just a narrow bit of policy. And I love the memoir. I love your going back to Peterborough. I thought that was fascinating. The way you interacted with your former schoolmates' parents was fascinating. Um, You know, and the way you went into the the brick factory and everything else. The whole culture I didn't realise existed around Peterborough. I learned a lot, and I learned a lot from the book. And I thought what was really interesting was the way after doing that DNA test you then went back to the experts, you sat down and they debunked it all! And it's like this is junk science! I thought that was a great great reveal the way you did that and then you said well actually this is why I held my hand up and said actually I've taken this test and I've been to Niger and they were telling you what was wrong with it and it was interesting there's this whole industry Quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, yes. my kids have done it now. They're, my oldest has right. written off to get a What's DNA test. What's your DNA? My son has. Yes. Um, and he's, I think, 16% Jewish, and he's oh. like most mostly Northern England, yes. and, but, but all the other little bits as well. And yet, that probably, like David's test, is a bit of a bogus <laughs> test. There's this big industry in DNA tests, but all they tell you basically is how similar you are to people who've also asked for a DNA test, oh, yeah. uh, rather than what your actual roots are. I wonder what that show up in rural Punjab. I know, exactly, I know. But there's a serious point, which David's rightly making, which is everyone belongs to various tribes of, of, of one kind or another, and, but we've got multiple identities as well, as you that's were saying. Right. That's right. You've got and Middle I think, England, you've got Tottenham. Yeah, well, and I think, I
0: think the point at the moment is I, I'm not trying to sort of resurrect... Uh, tribes, which is an anthropological term, and actually is to be, for lots of good reasons out of fashion and is seen as very um, almost colonialist but I do think this this new idea of a new tribalism where people um, congregate around a kind of in group because of a sense of their own. Identity or lack of identity whether you're talking about white working-class communities in America or in this country Or you're talking about uh, the current debate in the Labour Party around trans uh, Or you're talking about um, Black and ethnic minority communities um, And how that affects our politics is very very live and very real and Ultimately, I want a politics where we can come back together again and where there is a more powerful sense in our country of nation-building. You know, what does it mean for all of us to participate actively in something that we share?
1: You're obviously talking about bringing people together in this book, but you highlight two instances in which you kind of caused a lot of controversy because people thought you were actually pushing people apart by criticising Stacey Dooley's comic relief work or or the way it was portrayed in Africa and also uh, in your response to the Grenfell disaster. Why did you pick out those two things, and and what do you talk about in the book in in relation to those?
0: Well, I wouldn't get away with writing a book if I didn't examine my own behavior. So my own behavior is is definitely up for grabs. Uh, The great thing about a book is you've got pages and pages in which to explain the background to why you find yourself in the position you find yourself in, which is very different to 140 characters in a tweet. Look, on Grenfell, a friend of mine lost her life and, you know, I feel very strongly about that and, in a sense, the, I was the first MP to call it corporate manslaughter, to force and press for an inquiry, let's see where we end up with... With Stacey Dooley, um, there's, a, there's a long history of my engagement with comic relief and it's not against aid, we all support aid but it's about how it's done. There was quite a lot of criticism of the Ed Sheeran moment in comic relief, way beyond me. Um, And Stacey Dooley, the Stacey Dooley episode was a sort of playback of that to some extent. So I go into quite a lot of length in the book about um, why I took the views I take. And, And also in an age of populist nationalism, I as an ethnic minority MP, and obviously one of the most prominent in the country, have sort of slightly been forced into a place where I have to defend turf that I thought was was not contested. I mean, just five years ago, David Cameron asked me to lead a review on the problems of black and ethnic minorities in our criminal justice system. That was where politics was just a few years ago. You know, him reaching across the aisle, David, can you come and help me? I don't think anyone could imagine that today. So, the book is a reflection on where our politics has ended up in a very, very divided place.
1: Yeah, and in that section that we were just discussing, you, you kind of feel that when you, you maybe call out unconscious racism, it, it, it doesn't get the response that, that is particularly useful, you think. Can you explain it?
0: Well, I do think that there are real challenges in our country if there is a lack of education frankly about Britain's colonial past, about difficult but real issues like um, um, white supremacy. Um, People think in Britain that you're talking about the EDL or um, weird men in the deep south that wear hoods but actually that's about scientific racism developed in this country and others. A few hundred years ago and systems that were set up that very sadly still live with us today and sometimes and it shouldn't just be about me calling it out it should be absolutely about politicians who are not ethnic minorities calling it out but you do you know that's that's the firmament into which we we exist and it's right in a democracy that that people like me can say look this is a problem and actually it's not just about giving aid to Africa for example It's about recognising the growth in African countries, the progress in African countries, the amount of money that Africans in our own countries send back to those communities. You know, let's stack up all of the issues so you get a comprehensive view. And so that's some of the challenge that that obviously uh, I've been called to make. In recent times.
2: That's what I thought was interesting about the book. It's a sort of call to arms to everyone and it reaches across the aisle. You point out that on, in terms of progressive nationalism or a sense of belonging, the right's got an interest or the Conservative Party does because it's got this traditional belief in family and faith and all those values. The left's got a, a, a belief in it because of communitarianism and, and shared experience and that there is, there are, what I liked is you didn't say there was one solution for everyone. You said actually we can develop our own version, and they can develop their version, but actually there's a lot in common. And you weren't saying that somehow political parties need to dissolve and not exist, <laughs> there will always be differences of emphasis, but there is a common, um, to, to quote Joe Cox, there is a, there's something in common yes. there, which is you know a sense of nationhood, which doesn't just be about flag-waving, it isn't just about one thing, it's about these multiple identities you're talking
0: about? So I I talk in the book about um, being young at school, at primary school in Tottenham, and being engaged in country dancing, which was very common across British schools in that period, and loving it. (laughs) I talk about being a chorister in Peterborough Cathedral, and it leads me to a place where I'm very interested, not in Britishness, which has been a topic of... Uh, public debate, but Englishness. What is Englishness, and how can we share something and celebrate something that's 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 English? All of us. I I'm English, and I'm quite insistent on that. My sense of humour, uh, the football team I support, um, you know, the fact that when I was living in the states, I missed Ribena and <laughs> Walker's Chris. All of that is very very English. So. And I, I, I'd like politicians to get into that space a bit more, really, and assist that sense of shared identity that we've all got to have living in this part of the British, British Isles, whether you're coming from the Conservative end or the Labour end of the spectrum.
1: Um, do you think, A, Boris Johnson's capable of doing that, and, B, where do you think Labour's going wrong at the moment in terms of kind of ending the tribalism? You kind of touched on it.
0: The current incarnation of Boris Johnson doesn't seem capable of that because Boris has drunk the Kool-Aid on the Trump approach to politics and the sort of new populist nationalist approach that is garnering votes. So uh, it, it doesn't feel like it's possible. But I definitely think the conservative tradition is possible. It was described once upon a time as the One Nation uh, Conservative Party for a reason. So there is definitely a Conservative tradition that is very capable uh, of that and knows how to do it. On the Labour side, um, there have been issues. Um, and one of the things that the I think the general election um, throws up are different tribes within Labour. Um, a, a northern bloc that for the moment has left us Um, a kind of metropolitan um, um, uh, London view of the world um, that we see replicated in, not just in London, but in Manchester, Birmingham, cities that we still hold. Um, And I would say that, that the economic account that class and poverty is real and important, but we have to spread our wings into these cultural areas um, if we're going to be taken more seriously. We've got to have an account of people's lives that's about more than just cities, if you like. Um, in, to some extent, whilst I'm supporting Keir Starmer uh, for the leadership of our party, uh, it is the case that Lisa Nandy has been raising some of these issues in her approach to running the party. And...
2: Uh, have you She's finally... actually in my book as well. Yes, yeah, she is. There's <laughs> yeah. loads of good people in the book. There's Bernie Sanders, is it honestly... <laughs> it's interesting I mean, what access you got, actually. You used your your power of celebrity to, to access lots of different people. I thought it was interesting. But I wanted to ask you finally, to what extent are you living up to the little things that you were suggesting at the end? Like, for example, uh, looking up from your phone, talking to people more. Um, what was the other thing? Not going in the gym, going to the park run and a community event. Are you... On your, on in, in your daily life, finding that you're living up to what you want?
0: I am, to an extent, I can be found training and on the park run in Finsbury Park. Ah. Um, I'm probably not doing as well on my phone as I should be. I, I mean, there's a debate in my head, actually, at the moment, as to whether I should come off Twitter
2: entirely. Yeah. Just nice give it up. Do that, you?
0: Um, it, and, you know, because I, I don't think I'd be on it if I wasn't a politician. Uh, but it is this great means of communication and people approach me, I mean they they approach me particularly in London and they say thank you because they you know, in the political times that we're in, my I suppose the sorts of things that I raise are reflecting the sorts of views that Londoners have about a range of issues so so I'm trying Um, I haven't got all the answers and I'm so far from perfect but I hope People will will get something from the book, and the early reviews suggest that people can get something and build on it and take it off in their own direction.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, we must move on. Time for a quick quiz. Uh, oh God, I hate quizzes. Oh, it's a bit of a mixed bag this week. Um, we're going to touch on kind of public health and government advice and uh, response right, to yeah, yeah. See the theme. Yeah. Um, just just shout when you know the answer. Uh, I don't know any of the answers. Th- you might do. <laughs> uh, so, first question. During the outbreak of bovine TB, TB, sorry, I'll do that again. During the outbreak of bovine TB, what did then Environment Secretary Owen Paterson blame the failure of the 2013
2: badger call on? Oh, God. Is was that, it because badgers were doing something? Like, there was a funny tweet that people sent out at the time. Was it, I, it badgers It wasn't were, a tweet, it was a statement in the Commons. Badgers were going beyond the boundaries that they should have done or something? It's better than that.
0: Oh. I, I keep thinking of the minister that fed his daughter
2: a burger. Oh, the Gummer, you yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, oh. that's
0: question
1: number three ruined. <laughs> 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 go on, go
2: on. What is it?
1: Uh, it's, it Owen Patterson accused. Uh, Ch- changing the, the goalposts. Of moving Ch- the goalposts.
2: I <laughs> <laughs> got there in the end. Yes. Correct. Well done.
1: <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, well done. Uh, yes. Uh, one point for you, Paul. Uh, second question, uh, what got Cabinet Office Minister Francis Maud in trouble in 2012 as the government prepared for a possible strike by fuel tanker drivers?
2: I remember this. Do you remember he said, I think the advice would be go and fill up a, fill up a container full of petrol and take it home to bust the strike or something, and everyone said... What are you doing? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a fire risk. Yeah. <laughs> Fill up your jerry can. That, that was it. Advice. I've, got, was I've it. got
0: a feeling Francis Ford it. lives in a house bigger than the yeah, average yeah. one. Might an outhouse. <laughs> you have an outhouse. Yes, yes. For, for
2: the tractor.
1: Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, and the government eventually conceded it was a mistake uh, <laughs> to stoke up panic and also give completely dangerous I advice. So, I mean, this is how bad, you know, this sort of thing can get. Um, there is
0: uh, forbes yeah, uh,
1: Well, you, we've talked about it already, but in May 1990, then Agriculture Minister John Gummer took a very risky step in response to a potential public health crisis. <laughs> he
0: tried to kill Whoa. his daughter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you want to...?
0: Well, he, didn't, he fed his daughter a burger... And I, what was what was the, what was the crisis? It was B. It was BSE. BSE. BSE, yeah. BSE in, in meat, and he, he, to prove it was fired, he, he gave it to his <laughs> little
2: Cordelia. Yeah, yes. four-year-old daughter. That's I right. think she
1: had one bite and recoiled in horror. and then John Gummer <laughs> took a big bite out of it, and uh, <laughs> six years later, um, the, it, there was confirmed to be a link between BSE and, and the human form of the disease. So, it's <laughs> not the best way. I'm going to give you two points for that, David, because you got the answer on question one when it was question number three, so it's a draw.
2: Ah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, awesome, thank, well <laughs> thank you, Thank <laughs> you.
1: Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg's advice for dealing with coronavirus.
3: Coughs and sneezes, spread diseases, keep it in your handkerchief. Should and the public be alarmed? Coughs and
2: sneezes, spread, wash your hands from
1: Can you stop shaking? Hi.